Well, what we're going to do today, Lord willing, is finish off page 42. Um, we've, we're going to be finishing off this lesson uh, titled Born Once More that started on page 40. And we don't have a lot left of this lesson, so after we finish that off, we'll do a little bit of review. For those of you who have your notes, that will be especially helpful. We're going to go back to page 35 and cover some uh, review. But that is the plan for today, okay? So I'll uh, pray, and then we'll get started on page 42, where we left off last week. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made, the day you've given us. God, we ask that you would bless this day, that we would grow in truth and love and grace, that we would reflect more and more of your character as you've revealed yourself to us. God, help us to, to love you more, to serve you better, to honor you more from our hearts today that you would bless uh, not just this time of Sunday school, but the next service and uh, the business meeting today, that you would uh, be honored among us and that we would uh, have great unity. God, we love you and thank you so much for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, again, we're finishing up this lesson titled Born Once More, and we've talked about regeneration, which is uh, something we'll talk about more when we get to the review, but uh, the... Items that flow from regeneration, you find at the bottom of page 40, going over to 42. The baptism with the Spirit, sealing with the Spirit, and dwelling of the Spirit, filling of the Spirit, bearing fruit by the Spirit. And now we're going to talk about the gifting that is given by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's um, go to the next slide. My little clicker wasn't working. There we go. All right, <clears throat> so let's talk about gifting. Middle of page 42. At the moment a person believes in the gospel, he or she is equipped with spiritual gifting. Okay? There is a, such a thing as spiritual gifts, and we're going to look at a passage that describes that here in just a moment. But you have that blank there on your page that at the moment a person believes in the gospel, he or she is equipped with spiritual gifting. There are many different views on spiritual gifts, and we will barely scratch the surface today. But uh, here are two chapter 12s you can remember. I always like it when it works out that way on a given topic when there's like something in common between like a two or three main passages that I can commit to memory. And this is one of them. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 are your key passages about spiritual gifting. They both feature lists of spiritual gifts. Now 1 Peter chapter 4 also is an interesting passage, a helpful passage. But these are the two main ones as far as lists of gifts, Okay. Well, let's look at one of those, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11 is what we're going to see today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 8 verses, 4 to 11. Who would like to read those for us? 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11. Jen, thank you. All right, so... Again, we're barely scratching the surface on this subject today. You read through a passage like that, and you might have a lot of questions, <laughs> okay? Like, um, gifts of healing, what does that mean? Uh, you know, a, a distinguishing of spirits, et cetera, et cetera. Well, not today. We're not getting into all those particulars today. I want you to particularly focus, though, on how much the Holy Spirit is involved. Because we've been talking about how regeneration, or being born again, is something that happens by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit here is involved in the believer's life, granting spiritual gifts. If you just run your eyes over those verses 4 to 11, look at how many times the Holy Spirit comes up. The capital S, Spirit. 
over and over again through this passage. And then hone in on verse 11, because that's a very important one. Um, Verse 11 says that the Holy Spirit is the one who distributes these spiritual gifts just as He wills. The, the, The gifts, the spiritual gifts are given by the will of God. The Holy Spirit is God. Pretty cool. Now, how are these gifts, would you say, different from natural talents or natural abilities? That's a point of contrast we need to make when looking at a passage like this. What's the difference between spiritual gifts and talents or abilities? To get your mind going in a, in a direction here. LeBron James's basketball skills, is that a spiritual gift? Okay, all right. Well, what's the difference? Yeah, all right, so, well, you can actually start making a little bit of a list. Um, So spiritual gifts are given to honor God in a specific way. Okay, so that's an element of spiritual gifts. Okay, what else? Okay, as opposed, what would you say makes that different? Okay, Um, so... Let's see, uh, we could say uh, God-given um, with purpose, and I'm going to add to what you were saying there, Mike. You are saying, uh, you know, a talents, it's like an individual, uh, like an individual ability or whatever that you work on for your own individual, perhaps, glory. Um, but we see that i got to write and talk at different times. Okay. There we go. We see that the purpose of spiritual gifts are to be used in community. In community. In the local church. So God gives spiritual gifts. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, that's the exact context of 1 Corinthians 12, isn't it? One body with many different members. Well, what makes our members different? What makes us uh, unique from one another? Well, one of the ways is that we have different giftings, different spiritual giftings. We're called to serve in different ways. And so um, they're God-given with the purpose in the local church. There's an equipping reality with spiritual gifts. You're equipped to serve in the body of Christ. Other points of distinction that we could add to that list. Anything else you're thinking? We could say, I believe, that spiritual gifts have a direct spiritual effect. Okay, they're given by the Spirit. They're given for acts of service by spiritual people, those who have been born again. As we exercise the spiritual gifts that we've been given by God the Spirit, there will be a direct spiritual effect in the lives of those whom we serve. I think that is, uh, that's fair to say. Okay, So um, going back to the LeBron James basketball analogy, is there a direct spiritual effect by uh, LeBron James hitting a game-winning (laughs) three-pointer. Okay, hey, there you go. That's a good nuanced answer, right? Yeah, if he's doing it, if he's, whatever he's doing is doing it for the glory of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That means whatever you're doing in life can have a spiritual impact, right? But someone who is just um, without God in the world, living for himself or herself with these talents or abilities that are conjured up, is there a direct spiritual impact that that person is making uh, for someone else's spiritual good? No. Is that affecting the local church? No. Okay, that's, that's not, I mean, God can use any of that for good, but you get the distinction there, I hope, right? 
Um, Spiritual gifts are to be performed in love for the building up of the body of Christ. And what's really interesting, you can just jot this verse down as a cross-reference. Romans 11.29 says, The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And there are different takes that people have on, on that verse and how it may or may not even apply to spiritual gifts. There are some people that take that verse and say, well, that means if God gives you a spiritual gift, that is your spiritual gift for your Christian life. Or if he gives you two, three particular gifts, those are you know, yours for your whole Christian life. Um, there are others who say, no, that's not what that verse is talking about. And they would say even that spiritual gifts change over the course of your life. Um, there are some that would say with spiritual gifts, it's even more fluid than that, that there are a bunch of different spiritual gifts that exist that aren't even listed in Scripture. And those things can come in and out of a person's life. So a lot of different takes that people have on this. But I do think it's just worthy of noting that we have a verse like this in the New Testament. And you can study that out and figure out what you think. Um, but either way, we, no matter which way you take, I guess, we come to the conclusion, of course, what Scripture says is that God the Spirit decides how you are going to be gifted, and he gifts you for the purpose of serving in the local church. That's kind of the bottom line overview. Thoughts or questions on, on that? You all know very confidently, very certainly how you've been gifted? Those are some good, honest answers. Do you know confidently and certainly that you have been gifted? Okay, all right, well, that's good, because that's what Scripture says, so you better embrace it, right? If you're a believer, if you've been born again, You've been gifted by the Holy Spirit. You know, growing up uh, in the small public school I went to, there was this special organization in elementary school called Gifted. They called it Gifted for the, you know, extra smart kids. And uh, they uh, had me take the test for that a couple of times. I got called out to go take the test, I think twice in elementary school, and they never invited me into Gifted. So make of that what you will. But... uh, They, you know, it's kind of funny looking back that they called it gifted. I'm sure now they have a much more PC term for that. Like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what they would say. But uh, as Christians, we are all in that group together, gifted in the sense that we have been given spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit for service in the local church. Very important. Okay. Spiritual gifts are given to Christians for our management. And we must exercise good stewardship. This is a really, really important point. Just because you've been given a spiritual gift or multiple, whatever the case may be, however God has gifted you in your life, that doesn't mean that it all just flows and works out really well apart from your involvement. You are given the responsibility to steward all that God has given you, and that includes spiritual gifts. And so um, what God has granted to you, you are to go out and to exercise that for his glory and to seek to multiply whatever he's given you for his glory. Like you think of the uh, parable of the talents and, uh, that Jesus told in Matthew 25. And the one who sat on it was rebuked at the end. But the ones who went out and sought to steward it well for him, they were rewarded. And so that's the way we should think about our spiritual gifts is that God has given them to us for our stewardship, which should really motivate us to do something. If you don't know what your spiritual gifting is, that's totally okay. Go try something. Figure it out. That's how this works. Okay? You, you go and you try different ways to serve, and you'll understand over the course of time if you are designed for that purpose or not. And you'll have help from people in your church that will help you along. Dean. Yes. That's it. And if at first you don't succeed, try and try again. 
<laughs> yeah, <clears throat> that's it. Yeah, um, you know, it is kind of funny that in, uh, what is it, Roman, I think it's the Romans 12 list. It lists mercy and uh, serving as spiritual gifts. You know, and it's, it's like, uh, I say this sometimes to people, as tongue in cheek. It's like, hey, can you take that trash out? And, uh, you know, my response would be something like, oh, well, my spiritual gift isn't service, so sorry. <laughs> I, I'm more of an exhorter. I'll exhort someone else to take the trash out. So, you know, that, that's not how that's supposed to work, okay? Um, but, uh, so yeah, we all pitch in on a lot of stuff, but there are specific ways we've been uh, designed to serve in the church. If you're a believer, you're a part of the body of Christ. If you're a part of the body of Christ, you are essential. And if you are essential, you must use your spiritual gifts in service, okay? That's the way we have to view the local church. There is no member of the body that we could say is... Um, you know, truly disposable. If God has put the body together and he has made us all members of one body, we are all essential. And God has designed us in a certain way to serve in the body and to make the body work. Okay. First um, Corinthians 12, if you still have it in front of you, you know, this is the chapter where, you know, Paul goes on to explain more of what this means. If you drop down to verse 14, Paul says, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. So get what he's saying there, just those two verses. Paul's saying, just because you say, well, I'm only such and such, or I just do fill in the blank, that doesn't mean you're somehow non-essential. You are still a member of the body. You are still essential. Just because you say that you are just something, that doesn't make you someone who's disposable. You're essential. Verse 16, if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? There are many members, but one body. Now, when he says in verse 18 that God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, he's talking about God the Spirit. We were all baptized into one body, it says at the start of this chapter. We are all gifted as the Spirit desired. Here's a great evidence that the Holy Spirit is God, right? One of those passages you can go to for that. But uh, you are all essential if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You are essential to the body of Christ. You're essential to the local church. John Frame, in his commentary, says, If you are a believer in Christ, God has given you one or more gifts that the church needs for its ministry. If you are a pastor or other church leader, one of your chief responsibilities is to help people to identify their spiritual gifts and then to stir up those gifts so that they can flourish in the body. And that really is a joy. It is, it is totally a joy in the local church to help people find their lane and to see them own a ministry, to see them take off, to see them enjoy serving the way God's designed them to serve. And it doesn't always happen that way, of course. Uh, there are people that, you know, you try to motivate to serve, and then it's like, eh, but, you know, for this such and such a reason, I, I'm not going to. And that's always sad. Um, because even if we don't ever in this life feel like we get a really good, confident hold on our particular gifting, if we're trying, I think God's going to lead us all the way through. And God's going to be honored. If we're seeking to serve, knowing that God has called us for this, 
He's going to be very faithful to give us a sense of gratification and joy and peace with all that and to help us navigate uh, that, uh, going through that, okay? So any other questions on spiritual gifting before we move on to a bit of review? Yeah, mere Sunday morning um, food is, is good, but it's just Sunday morning food, right? If, if someone isn't being uh, mentored in some way or getting that Christian community and fellowship at different parts of the week, they're going to be missing out on several things, and one of those things is discovering ways to serve. So absolutely, yeah, getting involved more and more with the body is really, really important. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we are, we are told that uh, genuine faith in Jesus and true conversion will produce fruit by the Spirit, right? And uh, that is seen in spiritual gifts, exercising spiritual gifts. Uh, James uses the example, if uh, your brother it comes by and is hungry and cold, and you say, oh, God bless you, be warm, be filled, off you go. Uh, that says something about, you know, the status of, of your heart. And so, um, yeah, we need to seriously consider how God has called us to serve, and if we are willing, it's important to do that. All right, well, yeah, you start with, uh, you start with serving in the ways that are made available to you in the local church. So, um, I actually still have this in my binder. I was not planning on using this today. Uh, but now that it's here, I, I truly wasn't, all right? Uh, so there still uh, may be some of these on the table in the lobby, but we listed recently four ways that we really are looking for people to serve in the body. Uh, nursery, safety, though I think the safety team's pretty, probably pretty well set now, right? Okay. Um, so nursery, cleaning team, and the greeting team. Um, very simple ways to begin serving in the church. They're not uh, anything that takes any kind of, uh, you know, master's degree in anything. Um, and there's something that we all, in one way or another, do in the church, uh, whether or not we're really gifted that way. But it gives you the experience of being on a rotation, being on a schedule, working with a team, and getting into more service and seeing if there's a particular area from there where God would have you to serve in our church. It's, that's really like the low-hanging fruit or first-step type ministries where you can get started. And so that's where we encourage all people to start. Um, however, outside of that, there, there are different little things. Um, you can go to Romans 12 and read through that list of spiritual gifts and see some interesting stuff in there and think, oh, I could do this or I could do that. Like uh, one example that I've used in times past is like, Maybe God's called you to a, uh, a note-writing ministry. In our directory, we've got birthdays and anniversaries listed in there. Maybe God's calling someone to keep track of those and write birthday, happy birthday cards or notes to people or happy anniversary cards, things like that where you include some encouragement from Scripture and just let them know you love them. Little things like that are ways to serve in our church that are very essential too. Yeah, uh, treasurer is also a very important ministry. Um, that is going to be vacant here soon. We'll talk about that more in the business meeting. And if uh, the Holy Spirit hasn't gifted anyone to do it, I'll gift them by gunpoint. So, <laughs> well, that's what we want someone forced into the treasury. <laughs> okay. Well, let's do a little bit of a uh, little bit of review on this section. Going back to page 35, if you have uh, your notes with you, you can go back there where we started talking about the gospel. Our first lesson was gospel basics when we started the study of salvation section. And we still have more on the, the, 
this nature of salvation and the study that we're doing here. There's one more lesson in this, but I thought it would be a good time for a review. Uh, so as you consider salvation and the gospel itself, and you are allowed to use your notes to cheat, um, here are some questions. Number one, how do we know that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Someone give me a good answer, a good biblical answer to that. How do we know that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Joanna. All right, so we can start with that, right? Who particularly in the Bible is being quoted as saying Jesus is the only way to heaven? Who, who has said it? Yeah, okay. So, yeah, we start with Jesus and all of his apostles, basically, right? Yeah, um, good. Um, anything else you want to add to that as far as how we know Jesus is the only way to heaven? Yeah. Isn't it so interesting how John starts his gospel there? Out of all the places he could start, like you read the different gospels and how they begin in different spots. Uh, Matthew starts with the long genealogy, and that makes sense for a lot of us, right? It's like, okay, Jesus was born. Um, what's the line of his mother, you know, going back? Um, John starts with, like, before anybody was created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And if you have that kind of view of Jesus... It's pretty natural from there to say, yeah, I can't go to heaven without him. <laughs> There's no being reconciled to God without the eternal one who became flesh. So, uh, yeah, that's good. Also from page uh, 35, how should we define saving faith? As we think about true, genuine, authentic faith in the Lord Jesus, what are some elements that should be involved as we think about that? Good. Yes, trust. Genuine trust in, okay, so we, we start with, of course, the person of Jesus, who is God. We, we trust in Jesus, who is not just some dude who got a lot of influence. He wasn't like the, you know, first century John Stamos or something like that. Really bad example. Um, but he was not just man, he was God. Jesus, who is 100% man, but before that, and through that, and always will be, 100% God. Jesus is truly God and truly man. But not just his person, but his work too, right? Genuine trust in the work of Jesus. And what is the work of Jesus that someone is called to trust in? That, yes, we are sinners separated from God, but Jesus died in our place for our sins. First Peter 2 says he bore in his body our sins on the cross, and he rose again and ascended on high. So that's his work for us in our place, for our salvation. And so it's good to obviously recognize the deity of Christ or that, that Jesus is good. I mean, that's a good thing. But it goes beyond his mere person to his work, doesn't it? We have to understand what he did for us in our place. That is the heart of the gospel. Um, if you're still in 1 Corinthians, just turn over a page or two to 1 Corinthians 15. Look at how Paul sums this up. Would someone read verses 3 and 4? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Shauna, thank you. All right. Look at that phrase Paul uses at the start of verse 3. Most important or first importance. Top of the priority list is what Jesus did. That he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 
So that's the heart of the gospel. That's what's most important when we think about the Christian life. Yep, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. And so we recognize that Jesus is central to saving faith in that we are trusting not only in his person, but in his work, what he has done. By one act of righteousness, it says in Romans chapter 5, he was able to make forgiveness possible for us. We are justified by God because of his one act of righteousness, namely his dying in our place for our sins. Okay? Right. Well, 36, page 36, um, imputed righteousness. So on that topic of righteousness, why is imputed righteousness essential to the gospel? So I guess we've got to do two things. We have to define imputed righteousness, because that's not a word we use very often, impute. Imputed righteousness and understand why it's essential to the gospel. So who wants to take a crack at that one and why it's essential to the gospel? Yes, indeed. Yep. So if you want to um, consider this as like um, bank accounts kind of stuff, um, how much righteousness did you have in your spiritual bank account? coming to God in your natural state. So I can't even draw the bar like up here, like if we did levels, you know. You weren't even right there? That's a bummer. All right. In fact, um, oh, negative. Oh, no. Okay. So now we're going the wrong way. We're going the wrong way. And you said negative how much, Dean? Infinity. Oh, I should have done. That now just looks like an eight. Not negative eight. Negative, negative infinity. All right. So, um, wow, that's bad. Okay. Uh, well, then there's Jesus. Uh, when we'll, we'll consider, you know, Jesus as the human born of Mary. What about him? Where, how would he, you describe his righteousness? Oh, other way. Okay. That's an important one. Okay. All right, so he's going up that direction, and it's infinity. Okay, infinity up, and then we have infinity down. So what happens with these two when it comes to uh, imputed righteousness? Did that speaker just start working? Whoa, I thought it was working the whole time. Okay, so we have the setup like that today for uh, uh, the business meeting. Okay, I'll turn it down on there. Wow, that was weird. Um, Okay, that's better. <clears throat> Explain, based on that chart then, how imputed righteousness works. Because here's our predicament. And we're saying imputed righteousness is essential to the gospel and getting us right with God. So what's going on with this when someone believes in Jesus? Okay, so this comes over here. That's great. That's really good. But then you got all this stuff still, right? What about this negative, infinite negative balance that you had on your spiritual account? What happens with this? All right, yeah. So this infinite righteousness that comes over pays for this. And I wish I had like a cool um, like red marker where I could do like a stamp paid, right? But uh, it's paid, paid for. And now... This is canceled. It says in Colossians chapter 2 that our record of debt has been canceled. 
great, great news. The certificate of debt is canceled. And all that's left now is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's credited to our account. Credited to us. There have been times in your life where you've been seeking for some good credit. (laughs) Times in your life you've been seeking to borrow, perhaps. This is the greatest credit you could ever get is the infinite righteousness of God. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We're given the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, and so we are made right with Him, not just for a little while, but forever and ever. If we are born again in Christ, we are His forever. Exactly. Um, There's a song that we sing, Dressed in His Righteousness Alone. That's our understanding of the gospel and how we can stand before God. How can we be before God? Because we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ alone. None of our own works trying to sneak in there because that would muddy the pure water, wouldn't it? Uh, There's that word in the New Testament called propitiation, which does mean satisfactory payment. So you can see how that's applied to this. Jesus made a satisfactory payment for us. But the word also means a covering, means a covering. And we even use that word that way in our vernacular today, like, I got you covered. You know, someone pays for you, I got you covered. Well, we are covered by Christ. He has made a satisfactory payment for us, and we are covered because of Jesus. And we're covered in Christ when we stand before God. We are covered in the righteousness of Jesus, and that is what gives us assurance of salvation. If there was anything that we were bringing to the table, well... That's always in jeopardy, isn't it? That's always subject to how we're feeling that day or how we perform. But if you're not bringing anything to the table and you're trusting in what Jesus has done alone, well, now your salvation all of a sudden can be certain, can be absolutely sure. And that's good news. That's what makes it good news. Um, Page 37. Where do believers go when they die? When a a Christian, someone who has believed in Jesus, when that person dies, where does he or she go? All right, good, yeah. Immediately in the presence of God. And so down toward the bottom of 37, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Philippians chapter 1 are some key passages where we get that. But now maybe a little more uh, difficult to answer, maybe. Where do unbelievers go when they die? What happens to those who have died in their sin and do not have Jesus as a covering, who still have a negative infinite balance on their account. What happens to them when they die? Judgment. Okay, and how is that manifested? Okay, yeah, hell or Hades. Yeah, that's it. We uh, see different pictures of this in the New Testament. Um, In Luke 16, you've got that toward the middle of your page, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. From Luke 16, Jesus gives a pretty detailed description of what it's like for someone who dies in his sins going to Hades, a place of fiery judgment for the unrighteous, a place of conscious torment. And this is one of those teachings, of course, that some people don't like to accept from Jesus. But if that's the case, then apparently he's not Lord. But if we say Jesus is Lord, we accept what Jesus said. We accept his teachings. And this is what he taught on that subject. And so heaven and hell are real. Heaven and hell are on the line when a person dies. But for the Christian, uh, it's only heaven. Though it's only the presence of God. It's only peace and comfort forevermore because you've run to God the Son for refuge. And He remains your refuge forever and ever. 
But for those who die outside of refuge, they're in danger, right? Isn't that the, the contrast? You're either in danger or you're in refuge. And Jesus is the only refuge, okay? Thoughts or questions there on that? I want to move on too quickly. Page 38. Now, let me give you a really easy question. Whose choice determined your salvation? Now, why do we say that? All right. Where? Where in Scripture? Uh, kind of. First Peter 1, 2 says that Christians are elect, so chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay. Um, we also have, we have Romans 8, 28 through 30, and Ephesians chapter 1. We spent a lot of time on that a few weeks ago. We spent a whole lesson on Romans 8, 28 through 30, and a whole lesson on Ephesians 1, uh, talking about what those passages mean that talk about God making choices that have an impact, that have an effect. He makes eternal choices. And he's not just uh, choosing, you know, the color of hair you'll have and all that stuff. He's choosing certain people for salvation is what we saw in those passages. Another difficult thing for some people to embrace, but uh, it's what the Word of God says. And if that's the case, we, of course, are to submit to it. And not only that, but we submit to it knowing that embracing what God has said is going to help us make sense of more things in life, and it's going to lead for the Christian to more good. It's going to lead to more good, not bad. When we submit to what God has said, no matter what it is that He has said, when we submit to it, it will be for our good. No doubt about it. There you go. That was the fastest lesson ever on Calvinism. Oh, yeah, yeah. The guy dies and goes to heaven. Yeah, the, the one I, I stole. But I gave credit. Even though Norm Geisler probably stole it from someone else. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, yeah. Yeah, if you didn't see the, the joke in the email this week, it was kind of on this subject where it says, you know, there's a guy who dies and he uh, goes up to heaven. He's a Christian. He dies and goes to heaven. And he sees two lines, one with the sign that says, uh, determined by God, and the other one with the sign that says, free will. And he was a good Calvinist, so he picked the line that says, determined or chosen by God. And he stands in that line, and he makes his way up to the front, and the angel at the desk says, uh, Sir, how did you end up in this line? And he said, Well, I saw the two, and I, I chose it. And he said, Oh, the free will line's over there. And so he goes over to that line, and he waits, and he gets to the front, and the angel at the desk says, Sir, why are you, how do you find yourself in this line? And he says, Someone made me do it. So... And that's the end of that joke. Uh, but you see the, the predicament that it you know, gets us in when we start thinking about these things, uh, just in our own you know, philosophy of how this could work. The best thing to do, always the best thing to do, is just go to the Word of God, see what it says, seek to understand it in its context, and say, this is what, what I believe, where God stops explaining it, that's where I'm going to stop trying to figure it out, because what He has given me is sufficient. And we don't want to go beyond what is written. Okay? Um, 38, no, not 38, 40, page 40. So this is getting really close to where we were. Now, page 40, as we think about regeneration, what is regeneration? Yeah, being born again, being born once more. That's what regeneration means. Now, as we think about um, the Christian being born again, someone who is believing in Jesus, uh, when does it happen? All right, yeah. So it's at, at belief. 
is when that happens. And there are debates as to the order of all that stuff. Um, There's so many things that happen in an instant when a person becomes a Christian, right? You think about being born again. You think about uh, faith. You think about um, being indwelt by the Spirit. All these different things. And you like try to figure out, okay, what order does it all go in? And uh, we could talk about that sometime. I, I kind of don't super like those conversations because I don't think they're incredibly fruitful. But we can just say all a bunch of stuff happens at the moment of conversion because conversion happens at a moment in time. Even though in many of our experiences we recognize that it's, it was kind of a process of coming to faith in Jesus. You maybe had some Christian influences in your life or you watched something online or heard something on the radio, whatever it is, that kind of got your mind thinking. And over the course of time, at some point, you became a Christian. But it was a part of like this big process. However, um, we know that at one point in that process, you were saved. You were born again. It's not like you were 10% born again when you first started talking or thinking about Christianity. And a little later, the more studying you did, you got up to 30% or whatever. That's not how that works. You were taken from death to life. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son at a moment in time. No one dies with one foot in the kingdom of God and the other foot in the kingdom of the world. Okay, That's just not how that works. You are born again at a moment in time, just like you were born the first time into this world, at a moment in time. Rex. Yes, that's right. Yes, and what's interesting is, say there are like, I don't know, five dramatic events like that in a person's life where it's like, okay, I had this experience where, you know, now as a Christian looking back, I see that was God drawing me, God calling me. And maybe at number five, you feel like, Maybe that's when I really got saved, but maybe it was actually number four, the fourth event. Um, those, it can be really difficult with some people when you hear their stories, their testimonies, where it's like, wow, you were living for the Lord at this point, and then you fell away for a while, and now you're back. Were you saved then or were you saved now? Um, only the Lord has certainty on all that stuff, okay? Um, but what we do know is at a moment in time, a person is born again. Now, what does that mean for the Christian? Because we know that Nicodemus was incorrect with the whole idea of crawling back into his mother's womb, okay? So what does it actually mean then to be born again? What does that mean? Okay, and that looks like what? Being born of the Spirit means? Okay. Um, Good. Yes, new desires. Yeah, absolutely. Not that we become perfect, not that we perfectly desire all the time, but that the the way that our lives would be generally characterized is now a desire for God. And over the course of time, he works on us, right? In this life, he works on us, chipping away old sinful behaviors and replacing them with godly thinking, godly behavior. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. If Again, you're still in 1 Corinthians. Just turn over 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Would someone read that verse for us? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So look at this language Paul uses, this term that the apostle puts on this. Anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a new creature. There's a newness that happens. Born again, meaning what was old has passed away. And what is new has come. You're a new person. Now, of course, um, say you were... Uh, 
you were saved on, uh, I don't know, the 34 years and 17 days after you were born. You were 34 years and 17 days old. Are you going to look any different than you did on the 34th year, 16th day? No. So, when we say you are new, you are brand new, we're not saying your eye color changes or, you know, you grow five inches or something like that. We are saying inside, that immaterial aspect of you is totally new. Joe? Oh, very good, yeah. You got the joy of the Lord in your heart, and that shows itself on your face. Amen. Very good. Um, yeah, but that, it starts in the heart, doesn't it? Um, so what's true, too, is sinful habits and behaviors may not change on the first day. Now, for some people, that does happen with certain sins. Like with my dad, that happened with his drinking. He was a drunk my whole life. The day that he was saved, he stopped drinking. And to my knowledge, hasn't had a drop since. Does that happen with everyone? No. Uh, for me, it was my mouth, my language. God just took it away. just didn't have a desire for it anymore. Um, it just changed. But was there other stuff that definitely lingered that didn't look any different on day one of being a Christian than it did on my last day of being a non-Christian? Yeah, right. There was that stuff existed too. Okay? But what we know from Scripture is that a person on the inside, his spirit or his soul, his heart, his mind, however you want to term it, has been made new. And God is faithful to finish the work he starts. So he has started a new work, making the person a new person. And he is faithful to see that person through in this life. Okay? And for some people, that might mean just another 48 hours on this earth. For other people, it might mean another 48 years. Or 84 years, depending on when a person first believes. But God is faithful to work in that person's life over the course of time. How many times is a person born again? Just like you were born physically once, you're born again spiritually once. You don't lose that, that new birth. Over the course of time, it doesn't fade away, it doesn't dissolve. You don't get a new need to be born again again. You're born again once. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a, that is a good thinking woman's question. I appreciate that, Taylor. Yeah, so she's saying, okay, if you're born again at a point in time, but you are chosen outside of time, what's going on with your relationship with God, basically, up until the moment you first believe? Okay, well, I'm going to erase this now. I, I need to draw it, and... This is one of those times, like I've said before, where June bugs doing quantum physics, okay? That's what this is a little bit, where it's like we are out of our element a tad. <clears throat> but here it is, okay. So you've got the timeline of your life that goes on. You're born at a certain moment, and we'll represent by the cross the time that you are uh, saved, converted, born again. We'll use converted. Uh, for the label there. So we know after conversion that you have um, spirit indwelt living going on. The Holy Spirit's given to you. Um, Jesus described it in a certain way saying, uh, we, talking about the Father, He and the Father come and make their home in our hearts. Okay, And that's done through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we recognize all that's going on. Now, before that, what does Scripture say? Well, Scripture says that 
you are actually under God's wrath. It is absolutely true that before your conversion, even though God knows that you will be converted with certainty, because it's not like, will he or won't he believe in me? It's not, that's not what's in God's mind. He knows with certainty that you will be converted. Yet, because you were born uh, in a, the natural way of a man and woman who are sinful, and because you live in a fallen world, passed down from Adam is this sin nature. You were born with the sin nature. And God's only response to someone who is not covered by his righteousness, God's only response can be condemnation and judgment because he's a holy God. And so that exists on you. And that's why whenever we uh, faithfully preach the gospel, we include the wrath of God. We don't know if that person is chosen by God or not. But we, we can include, based on the clear testimony of Scripture, that you are under the wrath of God, you are in danger of the judgment of God and the condemnation of God without Jesus Christ being your righteousness. Now, in God's mind, it's all figured out. He knows. In our mind, we go and preach to everybody without knowing, and we just preach faithfully. And by God's grace, some people are converted and are born again. Yes. Yeah, God can... Um, Walk and chew gum at the same time. So for the, those who are his elect, yes, there's the reality of they're under his wrath, but there's also this reality leading up to their conversion that he's drawing them to himself. And he uses the message of warning them of the danger they're in in their sin as a means of drawing them. The gospel being preached to people is the means that God uses to reach people. Yep, all sins, past present and future, but yeah, past, we racked them up, didn't we? Uh, why are certain elect people not saved yet? It could be like God said of the Amorites, that their sin is not yet full. And uh, there will come a day when their sin is full, and now it's time for them to be forgiven. And Yes, yep, that's right. 2006 for both of us. Okay, well, how about I uh, close us in prayer, and then we'll move on to the next thing. God, we thank you so much that... Through Christ, we are forgiven, that we are born again to a living hope because of the way that you've worked in our lives. And God, we ask that you would bless us today as we continue to learn more about you and the gospel and its impact on our lives and how we are to live and honor you. Help us to serve you well. Help us to bless one another today in love and in the truth. Thank you so much. 